We are continuing in John's gospel account, and today we will be looking to John chapter 9, all of it. So as we prepare to turn there, uh, let me pray, asking the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Would you bow with me? Father, this is, this is your word, and I ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. This we ask in Christ's name, amen. They say that seeing is believing, but is it really? Is seeing really believing? Let me just frame for you a second where we're going in John chapter 9. In the beginning of this chapter, there are those who can see, and there are those who cannot see. At the end of John chapter 9, there are those who can see, and those who cannot see. But are they the same? There might just be a point of transition in this chapter. There's a movement in this text which is reflective of a movement in our lives and a movement in our sight. So as we make our way through this chapter, I want you to consider what causes some to see and what causes some to grow more dim. I hope you understand by now that we're talking about sight on two different planes. You might recognize that as you look at the outline. There will be the plane of physical sight and there is the spiritual. So as you consider this movement that we'll, we'll witness throughout this chapter, maybe you can also ask yourself, where is Jesus' priority? We'll look to the first seven verses as we break this text up, as we make our way through. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud and with the saliva, uh, and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. So we've made our way through John's gospel. We've pointed out the fact that John the Apostle, who wrote this account, has very intentionally given for us a series of 
miracles that he calls specifically signs. Those signs, there are seven of them, are given to us, as John tells us at the end of his gospel account, that we might see and believe. That Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Christ, and that in believing we might find life in his name. Understand the miracles are given to us for a very specific purpose. It's that we might believe. We look through this text, we're going to explore both. The miracle and the call to belief. But before we get into that, Jesus deals with possibly a more fundamental question at the beginning of this text. Many of us, when there is suffering, we want to ask a question. Why? Why me? Why them? Why the suffering? But for the disciples, they've got a different question. Not why, who? You see, they just assume that if there is suffering, there must be a cause. So who caused it? Who sinned? The man or his parents? That question of, of who and more specifically who caused, it's, it's a close kin to another question. Who gets the credit? You see, we all want to assign blame or receive credit. And both are counter to the God of grace. Because they want to put more on us than is due. We talked about this a little bit earlier in John chapter 5 when we explored Jesus' healing of the paralytic by the pool. We did so, we compared that healing to this one because there are some notable contrasts. There in John chapter 5, there was at least some cause for evidence that that paralytic's suffering was due in some part to his sin. Maybe, maybe not, but there were other contrasts between his healing and this one point we need to see and the point that Jesus makes clear here is that suffering is not always a direct result of a person's sin. Jesus says it here, that we can't assign a cause either to the man or to the parents because his blindness is not a result of some sin on either of their parts, but Jesus says his blindness is here for the glory of God, that the works of God might be displayed in his life. We hear that though. And it's kind of hard to hear. It's hard to hear that this man is blind so that God may be glorified. That, that doesn't sound fair to us. It's the truth that we need to hear though. It's not easy to hear. But we need to hear it. Because we need a theology of suffering. Somewhere along the way, in our Christian culture, there is this mistaken belief that when we become Christians, it then is the end to all of our earthly suffering. That for the person who is in Christ, as long as he has enough faith, he will be healed. We've, we've missed the biblical teaching on suffering because nowhere in Scripture is there a promise that we will be free of suffering. In fact, just the opposite, there is a promise that we will suffer as Christians. 
there's an encouragement that through our suffering, we will come to know more intimately our suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter into his suffering because he enters into ours. Later, much later, the disciples will actually praise the Lord that they have been given the privilege of suffering for him. Where do we lose that? We need a theology of suffering so that we are not surprised by it, nor should we assume in our suffering that God is either displeased with us or distant from us. His ways are higher than our ways. His wisdom is perfect. He is sovereign over all. And in this instance, in John chapter 9, His glory, the glory of Christ, took the form of healing. This tells us something profound about the heart of Jesus. He is a minister of mercy. (laughs) He engages in the man's suffering with a tender compassion. And with that tender compassion, he chose in his wisdom to heal this man of his blindness. It's a happy ending. As we understand it, we we see this and we celebrate, but we also wonder. What about those who don't receive healing? Are they any less loved? Was their faith not strong enough to secure that healing? Has God either neglected or abandoned them? We wonder. Because Jesus healed the man born blind. Why has he not healed my cancer? And I stand before you to say, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that this suffering is not new. The disciples would go on to suffer, not merely in spite of their faith, but because of it. Many of them would be martyred, and the same question could be asked of them, why? We don't know the specifics. We don't know those answers. But what we do know is what God tells us, that ultimately this suffering is for His Glory And sometimes that glory comes in the form of healing. And sometimes that glory comes in the form of his presence. Because Jesus is near the sufferer. He's not detached. The sufferer is not a mere pawn in some giant chess game that God is playing. That's what Satan would have us believe when we hear that our suffering is for the glory of God. But no, Jesus is engaged. He enters in. He did so then. He does so now. And that is a picture of the heart of the Savior. So he healed the man. He healed him of his blindness. He spit on the ground. He made some mud. He rubbed it. In the man's eyes and then he told him to go wash. Why did he do it that way? Again, I don't know. 
I don't know. Jesus had the power to speak the words, and the man would have been able to see. But for some reason, in his wisdom, he did it differently here. Maybe to dramatize the whole healing because he was drawing something out of the man. We'll see as we continue in this chapter that Jesus wasn't finished with him. His work of mercy was meant to serve a greater purpose of grace. We need to see in John chapter 9, the whole of Scripture and in our lives, the physical illustrates the spiritual. Before we go to the next passage, I want to set the scene a bit. There are degrees of affliction. You know that. There are degrees of diagnosis. There's a difference between a a, a strained ligament and a torn ligament. And there are also degrees of blindness. Not always what we call blindness means that everything goes dark. Not always what we call blindness is is an inability to see anything. Blindness generally refers to sight that is inhibited. And oftentimes, sight that is inhibited is a worsening condition. In other words, blindness or any affliction for that matter is not static. It doesn't stay in place. It moves. It grows. It worsens. Spiritual affliction is the same. We're going to look to different groups in this chapter. Process what might be their diagnosis. It's my guess. But understand that not all of this spiritual blindness is the same. Let's look to uh, the neighbors and the parents. I'm going to continue reading verses 8 through 23. You can follow along with me. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this is not, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. We're assigning a diagnosis to different groups here in regards to their blindness. Let's just call the the neighbors and, and the parents, let's call them resistant. Resistance can take on different forms. Now, before we get into those forms, I, w- I want to just set a bit of a a theological framework, a truth that we need to hold, two truths that to our minds seem to be intention but beautifully complement one another. It's this, God is sovereign and man is responsible. God in in his infinite wisdom and holiness has ordained the end from the beginning. God is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over our lives. He is sovereign over salvation. And as we have seen in John, no one can come to Jesus unless it is granted to him by the Father. We must acknowledge God's ultimate sovereignty over all creation. And yet, the complementary truth to that is that man is responsible. Man is responsible for his sin. Man is responsible for his resistance. And ultimately, that resistance can lead to a hardness. We we don't understand how sovereignty and responsibility fit together. They don't fit in our minds, but they beautifully complement one another and are found throughout Scripture. So keep that in mind as we unpack this diagnosis. Some level, resistance, a dangerous resistance. That's the point I'm trying to make. The resistance of the neighbors is is confusion and denial. They see him. They They had seen him blind and likely begging, but now he sees. And they think to themselves, this can't be the man. Could it? Maybe it just looks like him. And with that, verse 9 is almost humorous as they're debating whether or not this is the man and he's in their presence. He's jumping up and down. I am he. They were confused and in denial because what they saw didn't match what they thought. And they wrestled with it. Resistance. But for the parents... Their resistance took a more dangerous form. For the parents, their resistance took the form of the fear of man. Obviously, their parents knew their son. They knew their son had been born blind and obviously now could see. Can you imagine your child born with an affliction is healed? Can you imagine The joy that you would experience in that healing. You would want to stand on the rooftop and shout for the world to hear. You would want the world to know this miracle worker who had healed your child of their affliction. Unless 
Unless you had a bigger fear. Rooted in a more pressing desire. Unless acceptance by others was more important for you than acknowledging this gift. Can you relate? For the parents, fear of man was rooted in a desire for acceptance by the Pharisees. Or maybe more specifically, a desire to be accepted at the synagogue. The synagogue was was the church gathering for the Jews. It's not clear that the parents were, were hardened. I'm not ready to, and it doesn't matter what I think ultimately anyway, but I'm not ready to make that declaration from, from the Scripture. It's not clear that they were hardened, but their fear of man was sending them down a very dangerous and very slippery slope. Where, where do you experience this? This fear of man. This week I had a conversation with um, a friend who was telling me about his work environment. Sometimes we can become, um, I, I guess, blinded by our notion of what cultural Christianity looks like in the Bible Belt and think that everybody's a Christian. Well, guess what? They're not. And maybe some of you would not consider yourselves to be a Christian. And if that is the case, then praise the Lord, I'm glad you're here. But for some, that takes on a form of antagonism. My friend talked about his work environment, which is a very secular work environment, an antagonistic work environment, where he feels the pressure to conform and knows very clearly what it means to live an authentically Christian life in that workplace, that it puts him at risk. At an economic risk. For some of us, the fear of man looks like a very real struggle with the economic risk of living an authentic life for Christ. And knowing that if we do so, it just might hurt our career. For others, it's not an economic risk, but a social risk. That impacts all of us regardless of age. But the young people, I think, feel it maybe possibly more acutely in the schools. It doesn't have to be in the schools. It's in all of life. There's a desire to fit in, to be accepted, to be wanted. And so fear of man for many of the young people looks like conforming to expectations of others so that we will be accepted. We don't want to feel out of place. So we change our words. We sacrifice convictions so that others would approve. We feel that regardless of age. You don't have to be a teenager to feel the fear of man when it comes to social acceptance but there's also another form of fear of man that is uniquely present in christian culture (laughs) for some of us it shows up in this notion that we have to fit into what a christian is supposed to look like there's this bubble apparently and we think we're supposed to fit into that bubble but we know on some level that we don't We fear being exposed. We fear being exposed with our sin struggles because if other people knew that I struggled with that certain sin, then there's no way that they would accept me or love me. They wouldn't think that I am a Christian. It shows up in a variety of ways. 
it is insidious and sometimes humorous. Twice this week, I have been asked the question, at a wedding, can you dance? I responded, it's the wrong question, by the way. Can I dance is a different question than should I dance. <laughs> yes, I can. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm, the question is, am I allowed? Absolutely we're allowed to enjoy the joy of a wedding feast, but for some reason we have created this notion in the Christian culture that we shouldn't do that. And we fear fitting in. We fear fitting in. Sometimes it looks like fitting into Christian culture. The problem is, the more we play that game, the less we need Jesus. The more we think that what we do and how we do it marks our Christianity, the less we actually need the Christ of Christianity. Listen, there is a fear that thwarts our fruitfulness and joy in the Christian life, and there is a fear that hardens us against belief. So which way will we go? Will we pursue the glory of man rather than the glory of God and then ultimately find ourselves imprisoned by it all? Or will the struggle send us running for Jesus? The question is still out for the neighbors and the parents. What about the Pharisees? Let's pick back up and read verses 24 through 34. So for the second time they, that is the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. We said that there were degrees of affliction. There are degrees of blindness. And some of those are surprising. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In other words, sometimes those who think they have the best sights are the most blind. Those who think that their eyes are the best trained, are those whose vision is the most dim. The Pharisees, let's call their affliction hardness. 
later. In the chapter, Jesus will go on to say that it was their sight that made them blind. What caused that? If you are here last week, you, you heard me describe the sacred cows that I saw in John chapter 8. And we talked about those sacred cows. The sacred cow in John chapter 8 was the sacred cow of Abraham. The Pharisees had, had made Abraham the object of their worship. That was John chapter 8. In John chapter 9, it's not Abraham who's a sacred cow. It's Moses. Why Moses? Well, his healing took place on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath and Sabbath healing was a flashpoint for the Pharisees in the gospel accounts. Their understanding of Moses, the law of Moses handed down to Moses by God on the Mount Sinai, their understanding of it largely surrounded around their human tradition. That was their litmus test. And so if the law of Moses was their litmus test for orthodoxy, then the Sabbath was the test strip. Don't misunderstand me. The Sabbath, the fourth commandment, continues in its importance. It is a part of the moral law of God that remains just as true today as it did on the day when God spoke it with His very voice at Mount Sinai. But the Sabbath is a commandment that uniquely lends itself to the Pharisees' own traditions as a measure of orthodoxy. They added to it. They codified it. They listed out the do's and don'ts and made their understanding the measure of true obedience. Verse 28, they declared themselves to be disciples, not of Jesus, but of Moses. And in doing so, they missed the fact that Moses pointed them to Jesus. Moses pointed to the greater Moses, to the Redeemer who would come and crush the head of the serpent. They pledged allegiance to the lesser. Now, let's be charitable. On some level, to some degree, their reasoning did make sense. They thought Jesus was breaking the law, and therefore, if he was breaking the law, he couldn't be from God. The text says that there was division, and it was an honest division. And we need to understand that an honest division is okay. But the question is, what do you do with an honest division? When there's an honest division, you, you consider various sides. Could it be that Jesus really is the Son of God? Could it be that in His coming, He is showing for us a deeper spiritual meaning behind the Sabbath? But rather than exploring truth, they were hardened in their unbelief. You see, for them, unbelief was their presupposition. It was their first stand. We're hardened in our unbelief, and so therefore, whatever the experience is, it must fit into our definition of truth, our category of truth. Regardless of what they saw, they refused to believe. They witnessed the miracle. 
They saw the man who was now seeing. They knew that he had been born blind. There was no debate about the healing. No debate about the miracle. But hardness won out. Ironically, in verse 24, they tell the man, give glory to God. His response in verse 25 is striking. Absent from him is the hardness. The man, he doesn't pretend to know everything because he is open to where the truth will lead him. All he knows is that once he was blind, but now he can see. The ensuing conversation further reveals their heart. They're not concerned about the man. They're not concerned about the glory of God. They're too self-important, too self-focused, too blinded by self-glory. You see, the Pharisees, they were fooled by sight. They were fooled by sight into thinking that they weren't the ones who were blind in this whole conversation. You see, the parents, they were resistant. And by their resistance, they risked sliding deeper into that same blindness because of their fear of man. But the beautiful irony in all of this story is the one who was truly blessed was the man who had no confusion about his own blindness. It was a gift from God, used by God, to prepare him for a deeper truth to prepare him for spiritual sight i said there was a movement in this chapter did you hear have you heard the movement within this man and in verse 7 it simply says that he came back seeing in verse 17 he calls jesus a prophet in verse 25 he offers a humble simple description of jesus's miracle and then in verses 30 through 33 he boldly stood up to those who rejected jesus and then in verse 34 because of that they cast him out let's pick back up with verses 35 through 41 jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him he said do you believe in the son of man he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I, come and I came into this world, and those who do not see may see. Those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, they cast him out. But Jesus sought him out. We've talked about Jesus is a minister of mercy. Do you see the heart of compassion in our Savior? He pursues the blind. He pursues the outcast. He pursues the sufferer. It is his heart. It was his heart with the man in John 9. It is his heart now. Jesus pursues the sufferer. And he did so here with this man by asking him, putting him to the question, a very 
personal, direct question. A question meant to clarify sight. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man and and John is is a messianic phrase. As John speaks of the Son of Man who would be high and lifted up. The Son of Man who came down to be lifted up for the sins of His people. The Son of Man who will one day return in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is the phrase, Son of Man, that John speaks of throughout his gospel. Jesus utters it here to draw the man out. That he might not merely see a prophet, but that he might see the Messiah. Do you believe? In him. To believe in is to declare true faith. Trust. Jesus is asking, do you rely entirely in life and in death on the Son of Man? And verse 36 shows us that the Holy Spirit has been preparing his heart. For this moment, the man responds, yes, point me to him so that I can believe in him. Jesus says, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus presents himself to the man who now sees so that his heart might see. This is the Jesus who pursued the man. This is the Jesus who pursues us. And so in verse 39, it's as if, Jesus has been interacting with the man and he turns to face the camera. To turn the attention on the Pharisees and also to invite us, you and I, into this conversation. And in verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This judgment has two sides. One side is the judgment of hardening. It was that for the Pharisees. They were confident in their sight. And they became hardened to Jesus. And ultimately, they were made spiritually blind. But there's a flip side to that judgment. It was not only a judgment of hardening. It was also a judgment unto life. You see, for those who have come to realize their blindness, who have come to know their need of salvation, Jesus came to give true sight, true life, by taking the judgment on himself. Jesus, the just, is also the justifier of those who have come to faith in him. So is seeing really believing? Well, it depends. The ballpark will often yell out to the umpire. Others will yell out to the umpire, are you blind? We might say something similar when we're driving down the highway. For us, it's a callous accusation. But Jesus uses it differently. For Jesus, the question, are you blind, is a thoughtful invitation that we might see with the eyes of our hearts. Because then, 
And only then can we answer Jesus' question, the question he asked the man and the question that he asks each of us today. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Father, you are near to the brokenhearted. You enter into our suffering and by the power, the same power with which you raised Jesus from the dead, you give us a new heart that we might see. I pray today for that miracle and for that experience that we might truly see and embrace and know Jesus Christ, our Savior. For his sake we pray. Amen.